Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 4, Part 4, Chapters 1 through 20. It's okay in the day, I'm staying busy, tied up enough so I don't have to wonder, where is he? Got so sick of crying, so just lately, when I catch myself I do a 180. I stay up, clean the house, at least I'm not drinking, run around so I don't have to think about thinking, that silent sense of content that everyone gets just disappears when the sun sets. His face in my dreams, sees in my guts, he floods me with dread. Soaked in soul, he swims in my eyes by the bend. Pour myself over him, Moon spilling in, and I wake up alone. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back once more, or if this is your first time, thank you for joining Drink and Read, the internet's favorite War and Peace recap podcast. And we've had a bit of a downer in our last chapters, we've lost a few characters, and it's up in the air as to whether the rest of our main characters are going to get out of this alive. So, that song goes out to them. Today we conclude the final volume of War and Peace next to the epilogue, with chapters 1 through 19 in volume 4, part 4. But before we get there, this is Drink and Read, and I know I said I'm not drinking, but I lied, because it's Drink and Read, gotta be drinking something while I'm reading this long Tolstoy novel, and I've returned to a classic of mine, maybe yours, the Manhattan. So we've got some whiskey, we've got some bitters, we've got the vermouth, and I've watered it down a little bit because it is a Monday morning, and I don't want to wake up alone. As for the appendices section, where I usually point out what I did wrong, it was a rapid-fire section, as Tolstoy's want to do in the end of his novel. We did lose Petya, which was an emotional... I'm not going to say high point, but climax of the book, that one so young had to die so horribly and quickly. Um, we see that Pierre, after a lot of soul-searching and horrors of being imprisoned during this war, has been given a new opportunity to live life again. We still have a lot of romantic relationships up in the air with Nikolai and Mary, now that Sonia's out of the picture. The young Natasha Rostov is still alone, dealing with the death of Andre, her former fiancé. We see that Dolokhov's heart has been transformed into something a little bit more stony. 
Denisov is devastated at losing Petya, and Kutuzov is reeling from the aftermath of winning this war. Although, did anyone really win? But I've jabbered my jaw for far too long, so let's dive into today's chapters, shall we? Part 4, Volume 4, Chapter 1. We open on more dying animal imagery, but this time it's replaced with when a person dies, especially someone you love, you have a wound of the soul that is very difficult to heal. Both Natasha and Mary are united in their grief over the loss of Prince Andre and everything, every little nuance of the world is reminding them of him. The only ones they're talking to and confiding in are each other, but it's very, very little, and when they do talk, it's about things that aren't in, that are insignificant and in no relation to their future. Tolstoy knows how to write grief, because this is very relatable. When I've lost people in my life, I can't help but get introspective, you know, shun myself from the rest of the world, and I try not to bring up that person, even though you know nine times out of ten you're thinking about them all the time. I'd love to take a class on death if it was taught by Tolstoy, because I think he would have significant contributions to the subject matter. Mary is the first to be dragged out of her grief two weeks in because she is the sole heir of the Bolkonsky fortune, along with Nikolushka, who she has to raise. She has to write back to relatives and share their condolences. It's a lot to take in, but she has risen as a person. You know, she's changed, she's been on this emotional voyage, and she says, okay, fine, I'll do what I need to do. It's suggested that she move back to the family house in Moscow because it has very minimal damage, and she says, okay, I will do that. Mary asks the Rostovs if it would be okay for Natasha to go. They're all for it because they see Natasha is physically declining. She's in the state of depression that she can't seem to snap out of. But when she's offered this trip with Mary, she denies it and goes, I won't be going anywhere. Natasha's in her room, very anxious and sad, constantly having something that she's tearing or kneading in her hands, and this is exactly how I grieve or how I get depressed, and she feels like any time someone comes to try and bother her, she sends them away because she's on the verge of discovering this crux of this sadness. And she's just looking into distant corners, thinking about how she's going to solve this problem and how her life has passed her by, and now the only thing ahead of her is ruin and sadness. She's replaying the night that Andre died and the words that he said to her, and at some occasion she places in new words and tries to reenact the scenario a little bit differently. This imaginary version of Andre tells Natasha that you can't go on suffering your whole life like this. You have to move on. If you do, you'll be completely healed. It's not like you didn't love me or neglected me. It's just that we didn't have the time to understand each other fully. And Natasha sees this, she confesses her love once more, and she says, it would be a horrible life for me to continue suffering for the rest of it. I have to move on, but I love you, Andre. She discovers this and wakes from her reverie going like, who was I actually talking to you? The maid Donyasha comes in and says, come quickly, there's been news to your father, he needs to see you. Petya. Well, it's time we break the news, isn't it? Chapter 2, Natasha sees that her family is so close together, being Sonia, her mother and father, and she kind of envies, kind of says, I'll never belong to that closeness again. She hears the news that um, something's happened with Petya, but she refuses to acknowledge it. It doesn't faze her at first. But then she stumbles into the living room and sees everyone openly sobbing and weeping, and she pieces together what happens, although she's still in disbelief. 
Natasha hears her parents sobbing and Mary tries to come and offer her some condolences and they just go over her head. She's still strengthlessly stumbling around, but she forgets her own grief and she hears her mother screaming, Natasha, Natasha, I want Natasha. Natasha embraces her mother and her mother does not want to believe what she's just heard. She says, Petya cannot be dead. It's all a lie. Natasha, if you love me, you'll tell me the truth. Countess Rostov is on the verge of insanity because she's lost her youngest when he was so young and it's done in unimaginable things for a mother to lose their youngest child during their lifetime. The family, the Rostovs, are then steeped in grief. Natasha goes, I don't know how those next few days passed. I just never left my mother's side until one day she's offering, that is, Countess Rostov is offering Natasha tea and going how handsome and manly you looked, almost like she's talking to Petya. But then she breaks down and goes, Natasha, he's really gone, isn't he? Chapter 3, Mary stays behind, postpones her departure to Moscow, and the other Rostov members try to console Countess Rostov, but they see that they are no substitute for Natasha, who does not leave her mother's side for three weeks. It's said that after a month before she heard of Petya's death, she was a cheerful 50-year-old woman, but after a month being exposed to the truth, she emerges from her room as a half-dead old woman. Beautiful imagery, although very macabre at that, when um, the soul of the wound, the wound of the soul is compared to a physical wound and how hard it is to overcome a wounded soul. Mary, who's been united strongly with Natasha after grieving over the loss of her brother, stays behind and then takes care of Natasha as well for an additional three weeks. It's just very interesting how these two characters have become um, exonerably linked together because when they first met, remember, they hated each other's guts. They couldn't see any positive qualities within the other. They left on odd terms, but now they are closer than family. One day, Mary takes Natasha into her own room for some privacy and for some rest, but Natasha goes stay and sit with me, and Natasha begins to notice that there are similarities between Mary and her brother. Natasha refers to Mary as Masha and asks her the same questions that she asked about uh, Anatole, come to think of it. And she goes, Masha, do you think that I'm a bad person? And, you know, vouching from one who doesn't have the most or stable mental health situation going on in his life, I get this imposter syndrome all the time where I think, am I a good enough person to even deserve to be happy again? So I don't understand or I... I mean, I have to believe that Tolstoy was very connected to his own grief and the grief of losing other people because he writes it so real. These two in this moment agree to become best friends and they share elements of each other. Mary opens up about her past, which she never does, and explains about her relationship to her family and her religion. And Natasha, who only recently just got into religion, sees the more Christian aspects of herself and goes... I could take up a life of religion as well. I see the weight of it. So they are balancing each other out. But still, they never directly mention Andre. Natasha is becoming very thin. And there are times when she has panic attacks, thinking about that she too will die either from illness, she will lose her beauty, and she will fade. And this strikes her to her core, as it does all, you know, people going through this struggle. And although she does not feel her best, and she feels as if the wound is not healing, she did not know it. She would not have believed it. But under the seemingly impenetrable layer of silt that covered her soul, thin, tender, young needles of grass were already breaking through, which were to take root and so cover with their living shoots the grief that oppressed her. 
that it would soon not be seen or noticed. The wound was healing from inside. At the end of January, Princess Mary left for Moscow, and the Count insisted that Natasha go with her so as to consult the doctors. So through her grief and the bond between these two new friends, her soul is becoming repaired and she's garnering the strength to finally leave her home and return to Moscow with Mary just for a change of pace and to live life once more. Chapter 4, the Russians are still pursuing the French, giving them das boot out of their country. Kutuzov can't do anything about it. The Russian army has uh, fallen to the wayside because they're so tired after trekking for 30 miles plus a day just to see them to the borders of the country, and there's nothing Kutuzov can do about it. They're towing the line of almost dropping dead from physical exhaustion, and Kutuzov says, Guys, we need to stop, we need to take a break and chill for a second. I just envision Kutuzov as the parent with the child on the leash and, you know, soulmates. Kutuzov is trying to stay hands-off. If his uh, generals come to him with any further projects, he just gives them the casual shrug and goes, I don't know, do what you want to do, I guess. But he can't stop them from pushing themselves to the brink. They're spurned by revenge. They just want to let their anger and frustrations out on whatever Frenchman they can get their hands on. The other generals are taking the opposite approach, and whenever they stumble upon the French, they go, Oh, well, I gift you these Frenchmen to kill. Do with them what you will. And this gets them tons of brownie points with the Russian soldiers. It makes Kutuzov look bad, and he's accused of blundering his way through this war, even though through the perspective of this novel, we see that that is simply not the case. Poor Daddy Kutuzov, you were the realist. And we know that. And we honor you for that. Chapter 5, the Russian Emperor Alexander and his people accuse Kutuzov of blundering his way through this war, and the narrator reflects on how Napoleon, although he was not the best commander and didn't treat his soldiers with any sort of respect or care, is hailed as a hero and a prodigy. Kutuzov is just a normal man who cared about his job, his country, and his people, and is tossed to the wayside like yesterday's cabbage. Kutuzov never talked about lofty things or ideals or history that he never lived. He was a simple man who wrote letters to his daughter, uh, shared a presence with his soldiers, joked with them, laughed with them, drank with them, and still paid dust. And while he is old and sometimes speak nonsense, he's always true to his own character, which is the greatest prize that War and Peace has given us by being true to oneself. Or to thine own self be true, some Shakespeare thrown in there. He's come out the other side as laudable. Kutuzov never gave a damn about what anyone else thought about him. He just did, and to quote Legendary on HBO Max, he did what needed to be done, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. And although he wasn't destined for the history books and for the praise of the Russian people, we know after reading War and Peace that he's done the right thing, and he doesn't need all those titles and that presence thrust upon him. He's just good being Kutuzov. And that's cool too. I feel like this is an after-school special. Chapter 6, another day, another new battle, pushing the last remnants of the French out of the country. We're at the Battle of Krosnoy. As is the usual, no one's where they're supposed to be, and Kutuzov rides off to talk to the other generals in conference. All the generals must be in Gemini season because they're talking about Kutuzov right behind his back, and then as soon as he shows his face, they clam up and go, Oh, Kutuzov, here's what we did. He doesn't give two shits about what they're saying. He's ignoring them, thinking about something else that's perturbing him during the moment. 
Kutuzov sees some wounded French soldiers, one whose face is bedecked in sores and gives him a nasty look, and Kutuzov glances away from this person with the sores. He wakes from his stupor, gathers his troops together, and personally thanks them for their service, saying that Russia will not forget what they did for the country. After forcing the French Eagle to bow, he gets emotional, as he often does, and he becomes no longer the general-in-chief, but now just an old man who wants to talk with his fellow soldiers. And he goes, When we go home, rest, the Tsar will thank you for your services and remember you, but now, after the war is done and won, we need to show each other peace and acceptance, and we've got to be generous and and pity these French soldiers, too. They fought for their country as well. They're not things. They are people. This is a moment of humanistic clarity for us, the readers, but the uh, Russian soldiers who are gathered around are just gazing at Kutuzov like, what the fudge is this old man talking about now? Kutuzov stumbles and then just shouts hurrah and starts riding off. Kutuzov later is seen openly weeping, so he's been going through a lot. I'm sure there is a weight on his conscience and soul. He had to do what he had to do, and that resulted in the deaths of many of his people and the French invaders. So it's not an easy life that Kutuzov has led, but the novel paints him in a good way. Better to be an unsung hero than an outright villain. Ooh, did I just invent a quote? I love that. Chapter 7, the Battle of Krasnoe has ended and everybody's dead, primarily the French. It has snowy and the Russians are moving the French bodies out of the way, making base camp and kind of enjoying life, which is grim. The Russians are trying to bring down a wall and they're calling other Russian soldiers or people on their side to help and there's a lot of merrymaking going on, but this wall just won't go down. A sergeant looks at them and goes, Hey, jackasses, there's some gentry that lives here. Let's not bother them. If you take down this wall, can you at least do it quietly? But inside, the generals are just discussing how great the battle was, their many victories, and they're having a rousing good time. The soldiers proceed to then meet up, take a break, eat, smoke a pipe, and get rid of their lice. Chapter 8, it would seem that the Russians, you know, dealing with freezing temperature, um, you know, subpar clothing, not a lot of meals and time to rest and bloody battles would be doing bad, but the narrator assures us no, the Russians were living the time of their lives. They're all cheerful as if nothing's going on, as if they're having a garden party, taking a few drinks, telling a few tales around the campfire, it's all good. But the conditions are not as good for some of these people. There's a sergeant called Crow. They call him that because he's bird-like and very thin, who's like, I'm sick, I'm hungry, send me to a hospital. Another dancer is dancing the soles off his shoes off. They're commenting that their feet are so cold that they can't be able to walk, but they still smile on. This chapter is just a lot of realism when it comes to the troops facing some downtime. They're chatting, they're talking about their victories, who they defeated, what they would do for revenge. Again, if they could do it all over again. They look at the stars, they settle down to sleep and go, Hey, there's a few French prisoners over there in the fifth company, and one of them's playing songs. Let's go over there and keep this party going through the night, huh? Chapter 9, we see that uh, the 5th Company, these are not technically French prisoners, they're just, you know, wandering out in the forest. There is Rambel and Morel, and the Russians welcome them and say, hey, you want a few drinks? I mean, the fighting's mostly over, what are you two gonna do against us anyway? 
Rambel refuses this hospitality, kind of just shrugs his shoulders, gives them, you know, the cold side of his personality, and Morel's there, and he can't speak the language, but he points to his shoulders and says, oh, this guy is a general. The Russians are like, oh, well, maybe we should take him to the Russian general so they can give him better company and food and shelter and, you know, deal with his hoity-toity ass. And they tell Rambel he can go, but he can barely walk. One soldier goes, oh, you know, you're having trouble walking there. And the rest of them chide these Ru- this Russian dude saying, like, you know, the battle's over. It's fine. You're a scoundrel. Stop joking. We won. And then the rest of them carry him off to the officer's home. So, I mean, it is a bit play acting slash rubbing his face in it that we're more superior than you. But I guess it's a kind gesture. And then Morel, you know, he's sitting around and he starts singing. One Russian by the name of Zalatiev joins Morel in singing in French and Russian, and they're having a good time. Morel is drunk, everyone's giving him more food. It's just like, oh, we could have been friends this whole time, huh? And one of the soldiers goes, oh my goodness, they're also people too. The French are people just like us. Uh, yeah, your guys are the ones that are fighting the war, and you could have been friends the whole time if it weren't for the up-and-ups and the more superior, in quotes, people, you know, forcing you to do their bidding. Chapter 10, the remnants of the French army are still retreating, and they kind of meet their match with a broken bridge at the river Berezine. And historians hype this up that this river is kind of what did the French in, but uh, the narrator informs us that more French soldiers were lost at the Battle of Krasnoe. And both sides are just as bad when the French can't cross this, the other people, the Russians, charge against them, and it's just a final outburst of violence. On both sides, the prisoners are mistreated. The Russians say that we can't spare the food for the hungry soldiers for these Russia, uh, these French prisoners, so they're going to have to die, and they do so. And the farther the French flee, there's a tongue twister for you, the more their army falls apart. Since Emperor Alexander is so pissed at Kutuzov, he sends along the Grand Duke Konstantin Pavlovich to come and give him a talking to. Like, no one even wanted you here anyway, buddy. Who cares about your opinion? Kutuzov gets the picture. He says, my time is up. You know, I'm done fighting. So I'm going to return home to my hometown of Vilno where I used to be the governor, you know, two times running. And in there, he finds peace and solace. He gets out of the militaristic mindset and settles into his old ways of life. Well, at least he gets a much-deserved rest. I think, and I may get this section wrong, one of his younger subordinates, uh, Chikagov, is there trying to get Kutuzov to admit that he's in the wrong in some way, but Kutuzov just shrugs and smiles and says, I'm gonna be fine here. He stations what's left of his troops around Vilno, and he just settles into old age, not giving a fuck about what the other people in the world think about him. So good for you, Kutuzov. The sovereign, Emperor Alexander, is on his way to give Kutuzov an earful, but he's just living life up in his castle, eating food, sleeping. The emperor finally decides to show up. Kutuzov puts on his best-dressed uniform and stands out on the porch calmly. And the sovereign looks him up and down. First, he's like grimacing, but out of old habit, he goes up and hugs Kutuzov. And since Kutuzov is such an emotional softy, he begins sobbing again. Like, he didn't do a good job when he knows he did the best that he could possibly do. The Sovereign shows his disappointment that the battle should have ended faster, this war could have been over, maybe you shouldn't have left Moscow behind, maybe we should have taken this bridge, and Kutuzov sits there in stony silence. When he's done being yelled at, he steps outside, and hey, one of Tolstoy's relatives here, Count Tolstoy, who's been mentioned before, presents Kutuzov with the Order of St. George, first degree. So in some respects, he is remembered and thanked for his service.
I mean, I like a pin, I'm a fan of a badge, but is it, you know, worth the weight of your conscience after serving your way through a horrible war? I guess it's the sentiment that matters. Chapter 11, out of ceremony and circumstance, Kutuzov is thrown a dinner, but things don't go over as well as expected. When the Sovereign enters the room, Kutuzov, in an old-fashioned attempt, throws down the captured French flags that, you know, he got along the way. And then the Sovereign gives him a look and calls him an old comedian. And everyone in the room seems to hint that although Russia is safe for now, Europe is still in danger, and Kutuzov goes, another war would be pointless, we've lost so many, who are you going to possibly recruit? And everyone gives him the cold shoulder, a shrug, and ignores him. It's evident to all that there needs to be a change of position. Kutuzov is relieved of his rank and duty for his country. And just as simply as he came into the picture, as simply as he swept on out the door. And now that Kutuzov is out of the picture, and he's won the highest honor that a Russian could do, he fades into infamy and then dies. That's how the chapter ends. Kutuzov did not understand the significance of Europe, balanced Napoleon. He could not understand it. Once the foe was annihilated, once Russia was delivered and placed at the highest degree of her glory for this Russian man, as a Russian there was nothing more to do. For the representative of the national war, there was nothing left but death. And so... He died. Lasted the whole book, responsible for so much in our war chapters, another major player has left the board, and he gets a sentence send-off. He deserved more. He deserved better. Chapter 12, Pierre has been freed from his captivity, but as is the case, once he's free, all of the physical burdens that have plagued him along the way catch up to him at once, and he spends three months lying ill in the town of Oral, where the doctors eventually nurse him back to health. And despite all this suffering, nothing has made a lasting impression on him. I mean, his soul, of course, he learned a lot, but all he remembers from this vague window of time where he was a prisoner of war is just gray skies, rainy days, and just repressing all that emotion and horror that he experienced. And on the day he was freed, he learned a lot more. One, Petya died, he saw his corpse. Two, Andre survived a month after the Battle of Borodino and just recently died. And three, his wife Helene is also dead. I mean, I get the practice of ripping off the band-aid, but uh, maybe give the political prisoner a little time to adjust to the surroundings before bombarding him with all this news. Pierre just wants to get away from it all, his pain, this war, but he falls ill, and when he wakes up, he's surrounded by two loyal servants from Moscow. We've got Terenti and Vaska, and one of his eldest cousin princes, I assume, who lived on one of Pierre's many estates, who comes to just take care of him. And we saw these cousins, I don't think it's the same one, when his father died way, 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 way back in the beginning of the novel, but maybe this will be a good choice or a good chance for them to rekindle their relationship. Pierre takes some time to adjust, even though he has the comforts of a bed, food, and his family and friends around him, he's still dealing with the news of the people he's lost, and his conditions that he lived in for the past few months. But in that internal freedom that Pierre has developed, the external freedom begins to match with no one close to him, there's no one that he has to please, no one he has to rush for, there's no wife to bicker at him or be angry at him for doing his best or worst. And he's asking himself, I can do anything, but what will I do? Um, I guess I'll just live then. How nice. He has no purpose now because he has faith and he can simply just live life the way he wants to. Before, he can only focus on the little minutiae of things, the unfathomable, the limited, but now life is infinite. There are infinite possibilities for Pierre to take, infinite roads for him to travel. 
and this is all thanks to his newfound respect and admiration for God. Chapter 13, Pierre goes about his business as usual from the outside, nothing appeared different, but now instead of being a kind, sad man, he's wearing a smile of joy throughout most of his days. Before he talked a lot and didn't listen as much as he should have, now he's listening intently to what everyone is saying. I think that he would be an adequate guest now at Anna Pavlovna's salons. His cousin, who disliked him before, now finds him an amiable fellow. Before they were just so different, they thought that they had so much disdain for one another, but now after taking care of him, this is a family member that she can confide in. He's charming everyone, he doesn't demand as much of his servants, even his doctor, who probably has other patients to treat besides Pierre, spends his days checking on him and confiding in Pierre, saying like, oh, well, this is how Moscow's going, these are the people I treated, and Pierre's just listening, and everyone's overjoyed that they just have this person to talk to. He's like the Delilah of 1812. Pierre's admiration also spans the globe. The doctor brings in an Italian officer, and the Italian officer is like, wow, if more Russians were like you, I think the world would be a better place. We're just going to ignore that backhanded ethnocentricism and move on with our lives. And who should show up out of the blue as Pierre is getting better but the person who introduced him to the Freemasons in the first place, Count Vilarski. Vilarski sees that Pierre has fallen a bit behind on his Freemasonry, but he's more the better person after his life experiences now. Everybody who irritated and bothered Pierre now, he sees past their little flaws and into the person in their soul. How very sweet, Pierre. Every question that plagued Pierre, as in who needs help, who can I help, do I help myself, doesn't bother him anymore. He finds an internal arbiter within himself with the perfect answer for all his questions. Or the fact that, you know, it's out of his control, he should care and do his best, but some things are meant to be. Pierre doesn't care about money anymore. When a French officer prisoner is taken to him, he demands that Pierre give him 4,000 rubles, and Pierre does it on the spot to help out his wife and children. One of Pierre's stewards reveals that this fire in Moscow burning down their um, house cost about two million, but in the long run of things with the debts of the countess and more and the other estate wasn't bringing in any money, Pierre is going to actually make some money in the long run of things. So fortunate, funny little happy accident. Pierre just laughs this off uncaringly and goes, haha, my ruin has made me richer. But since Pierre has come up roses in this scenario, of course, Vasily sends him a message, other people about settling debts and, you know, helping them rebuild the estate in Moscow, and then Helene racked up a lot of debt that Pierre has to pay for. So Pierre goes, fine, I'll do what needs to be done. Everyone goes off to Moscow, and whereas Wilarski or Wilarski sees that the death is going to kind of be a huge challenge to overcome if the Russians ever overcome it around them, Pierre looks and sees possibility and hope for the future. Chapter 14, just like the ants returning to a ravaged anthill, so too do the Russians return to the war-torn Moscow. Even with the lack of police, church, and any object of monetary value, Moscow goes about business as normally as they can. In a week, 15,000 people move back, and the next week there's 25,000 people moving back, and the number just keeps on climbing, so they are returning home to their capital city. The Cossacks who supported the Russians in the war come in and they claim what's theirs first, whatever scraps are left, and state it's their own property, bringing them off home, but no one really, you know, cares about that. They're just things. And after them, more looters show up and they keep getting less and less and stripping Moscow, more barren than it actually is. 
But this looting by the Russians and the Cossacks is actually restoring the economy, I guess, because those traded goods are going around and they're making profit. I mean, I guess it's just a way to kind of say that the French do everything bad, but whatever. Markets open up once more, trade is established, and people are more comfortable about returning to the city and calling out Rostopuchin's uh, political sway in the government, how he bribes the cops and everything is corrupt. So good for the people for finally noticing. Chapter 15, Pierre returns to Moscow and he is welcomed by everyone. Everyone's happy to see him. He invites Rostopuchin and the other officials who are there over and he is celebrating life, seeing that life is being restored once more into his city. And he asks, but what of the Rostovs? Where are they? Well, they are still in Kostroma. He rarely thinks of Natasha anymore, but when he does, it is a fond good memory. And then he hears that Princess Mary is also in Moscow and she lost a brother. Pierre fondly recalls the happy and sad times that he experienced with the Bolkonskis too. Pierre sets out to go visit Mary and on the way he's thinking about how Andre died in the last conversation they have when he was very spiteful and not at one with the world. And he hopes that Prince Andre found peace in his last few moments. Pierre goes, he is announced, he walks in on Princess Mary sitting with a woman who's clothed all the way in black, but he doesn't really dwell on that subject. He knows that everyone's in mourning for their life for Moscow and Mary for her brother, so it makes sense. And Mary's going, imagine me, I didn't know anything of my brother's death or that he survived so long to have stayed with the Rostovs. And Pierre is just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he notices that he's getting like a kind energy from this woman all in black. And Mary goes to Pierre, don't you recognize her? This is Natasha Rostov. Natasha's grief and struggles have caught up with her, causing her not to look her same young, innocent self, but as soon as Natasha smiles, then it clicks for Pierre. Oh my goodness, this is the girl I've loved so long, Natasha. Pierre wants to conceal his pride and joy that Natasha is still here, but he blushes and he embarrassedly smiles, and it's all very charming and cute, as Pierre is wont to do. And here we get a beautiful description of how Natasha had changed. Pierre had not noticed Natasha because he had never expected to see her there. But he had not recognized her because the change that had taken place in her since he had last seen her was enormous. She had grown thinner and paler. But that was not what had made her unrecognizable. It had been impossible to recognize her in the first moment as he came in, because on that face, in the eyes of which formerly there had always shown a secret smile of the joy of life, now, when he had come in and glanced at her for the first time, there had been not even the shadow of a smile. There had been only eyes, attentive, kind, and sadly questioning. But this confusion shows across Pierre's face as pleasure, and the two are finally reunited. It's time to play catch-up, y'all. Our two major characters are back in the same room, after each experiencing a unique and insurmountable journey. Chapter 16, Mary reveals to Pierre that Natasha is staying with her and the other Rostovs are along the way. Natasha's mother is very ill with grief and Natasha needed to see a doctor. Pierre goes, of course, you've lost your brother. I saw him, you know, I saw the body. I am well aware of that situation and what can I do to offer my condolences? And Natasha, instead of outright grieving, is like, oh, Pierre is so kind to have, like, remembered Petya and my relationship and to share his condolences with me. 
Mary brings up that it's, you know, the only thing getting us by in life is faith nowadays. Pierre heartily agrees. And then Natasha's like, you never used to be religious, Pierre. I mean, neither did I, but all three of us are religious now. But why? Pierre says that God is truly the master of our souls and in command of all things. Natasha opens her mouth to say something, but doesn't get it out. Pierre bites his tongue, thinking he said something stupid, and says, I have to watch out. Everything I say has a consequence, especially around someone as gentle and in the grieving process as Natasha. I have to watch what I say. Mary explains the final state of her brother Andre, and Pierre is using his listening powers to listen attentively. Mary ends the story in tears, turning to Natasha and saying, It's a wonder, it's a miracle that he discovered you first, Natasha. Natasha is on the verge of tears too, and she shares her part of the story where she had no idea as they were, you know, leaving Moscow in the first place, that Andre was part of their caravan, Sonia told her, and they spent these three weeks together nursing each other back to health, her physically with Andre, and Andre spiritually with Natasha. When she is approaching the catching up of the timelines here, she gets really overcome with emotion, runs out of the room, almost runs over Nikolushka, bumps her head on the doorframe, and holds back a moan, a sigh, whatever. She's about to cry, and she wants the privacy of that moment. When Natasha leaves, Pierre's watching her go and realizes how alone he is in the world, and he's unsure why Natasha's leaving prompted that. Hmm... Nikolushka comes in and Pierre is overjoyed that he is the spitting image of Andre. He's going to love and adore him, and this is a happy relationship for Pierre. And Mary says, no, Pierre, please stay. We usually don't go to bed until, you know, two in the morning. I'll have dinner prepared. And Pierre, that's the first time Natasha has ever opened up to anyone about talking about Andre. So you prompted something in her. Chapter 17, Pierre stays for dinner, and Mary, Pierre, and Natasha all feel differing levels of the same awkwardness at this dinner table. It's just like old times. Mary, very unlike her, showing how far she comes, uh, goes, Pierre, do you drink vodka? And then the conversation dries up there, and uh, um, she asks Pierre, tell us about yourself, Pierre. Pierre goes, it surprises me. Everyone asks to hear about me. Mary goes, is it true you lost $2 million in Moscow? And Pierre says, well, I'm three times richer because of it. Mary is the Barbara Walters of this situation asking, are you rebuilding? Pierre's like, yes, they're commanding me to. Did you know that your uh, wife or your ex-wife, the Countess, died while you were, uh, you know, out in the war? And Pierre goes, no, I didn't know. Mary is playing matchmaker and goes, so that makes you single and eligible again. And Pierre goes, well, yes. And then Mary switches the subject once more. Is it true that you talked and saw Napoleon? And Pierre goes, this is not the case at all. That's Andre who talked and saw Napoleon. But if you didn't see or talk with him, says Mary, why were you staying behind in Moscow to assassinate him? And why does everyone know Pierre's story? Both Mary and Natasha are enraptured by Pierre's recounting of his own tale, and then they arrive at the part where he saved that small child from under the bench next to the burning house. He starts on his imprisonment and the assassination of Karatiev, the old fool, the simpleton who helped him out during his prison stay, but he's leaving out the gory details to spare the ladies. And Pierre decides after, you know, the two is intent listening to divulge details that he himself haven't, hasn't or hadn't spoken into existence since his prison stay. And Natasha is enraptured. She's hanging on every word. And Mary notices that Natasha and Pierre, hmm, they're kind of hitting it off. And this fills Mary with joy. No one recognizes the time when the tale is done. It's three o'clock in the morning. Time for everyone to go to sleep. Natasha questions Pierre 
if you were given the choice or you knew the events to come, would you do it all over again? And Pierre goes, even with all the suffering and, you know, hardships that I went through, it's changed me for the better as a person. So I would do the same. And then he goes to Natasha, I'm sure you would too. And this breaks Natasha. She starts to cry. She leaves and says goodbye to Pierre. Pierre leaves and the two ladies head up to bed and they talk about Pierre. Natasha goes, we don't really bring up Andre anymore. I'm afraid we're forgetting him. Mary goes, I don't think that's the case. We just do it out of respect and that's the way we're conditioned to behave. And Natasha says to Mary, at least I was able to get out these emotions today. It felt good. And Pierre, he's changed, hasn't he, for the better. He reminds me of my father and he's a totally different person. It's okay that I shared that story with Pierre because him and Andre were best friends, right? And Mary goes, yeah, Pierre's wonderful. I think that's great that you two are talking together. And Natasha goes to bed in high spirits for the first time in months. Chapter 18, Pierre returns home and he is having trouble sleeping as well because after the conversation with Natasha about Andre, he sees how these two people have truly loved him and that he won't stop at anything to ask Natasha for her hand in marriage. We've arrived at the point, oh, it's taken 1,119 pages, but I think Pierre wants to propose to Natasha. Pierre is talking to one of his servants, Savaliich, the next day, and he would give Savaliich his freedom if he asked, but Savaliich goes, no, what would I do, sir? And Pierre goes, well, if I get married, right, then I will be looked after by my wife. And Savaliich goes, that's a great idea. If that day happens, I would be overjoyed. Pierre is saying before he goes off to St. Petersburg, there's matters that he has yet to reveal to himself that he has to, you know look over and finish before he moves. So he goes to the breakfast table and he talk, starts talking to the countess, one of his cousins, goes, well, I, I visited Princess Mary yesterday. And the cousin replies, oh yes, I hear that they're trying to set her up with the young Nikolai Rostov. That's good because the Rostovs are bankrupt and they're quite ruined actually. And Pierre questions her further. Do you know anything about Natasha Rostov? She was there too. And the countess cousin says, the only thing I know about uh, uh, Natasha Rostov is that she had that dalliance with Anatole and ruined her relationship with Andre. It's a great pity. The police chief shows up and every person that he's talking to, Pierre is seeing the good within them and saying, what a nice person. How beautiful. How handsome. It's wonderful that I get to talk to such great people. He goes over yet again to dine at Princess Mary's. Pierre's riding over and he's doubting that last night ever happened, that Natasha spoke with him. He says he must have invented it in his mind, but he goes and spends the entire night there with Princess Mary and Natasha talking about nothing, changing the subjects, and it's getting late once more. Princess Mary and Natasha are looking at each other like, um, shouldn't you be going somewhere, Pierre? And Pierre can't find himself the willpower to leave. They ask Pierre, aren't you going to St. Petersburg tomorrow? And Pierre goes, no, I'm going to stay around here and, you know, do some errands for you to help you out of your situation. And Natasha thanks him, leaves the room, and Mary goes, all right, what's up? Sits in this armchair and starts interrogating Pierre. And Pierre is like a bashful young boy asking for a date to prom. And he goes, well, I, I wouldn't know, Princess Mary, there's something I have to talk about with you. Pierre blurts out, I've been quite in love with Natasha my entire life, but I've never worked up the courage to propose to her, and I don't think she'll actually love me. Princess Mary goes, but, but, but wait, 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 wait. I'm all for this, but we gotta go about this the right way. You can't startle her into this with your awkward ass. Write a letter to her parents, leave it to me, and I'll smooth it over with them, and then we'll transition gracefully into a proposal. 
Who is this Mary? Why is she here? I love her. Look at Mary in the glow up, helping her friends date her other friends. Mm. Mary finally decides that Pierre should go to St. Petersburg, and if anything happens, she will immediately write to him. Pierre goes fine and says goodbye to Natasha the next day. He grabs her hand and says, I hope I will see you soon. And Natasha replies back, yes, uh, goodbye. I'll be waiting very much for you. And... This inspires confidence in Pierre. He's over the moon, he's Twitterpated, and we've got the buddings of another romance, people. Yeah, I know, age difference. Okay, we've been talking about this from the beginning of the novel, but these two are perfect for one another. Chapter 19, Pierre is going quite mad with, you know, the pre-nervous love jitters. He wants everything to go over well. He's imagining it's all a dream that couldn't have been possible, that Natasha's interested in him. He never spoke to Princess Mary. She never agreed to this whole situation. He just made it up. Initially, Pierre felt unworthy of love, but now after going through his experiences and talking to so many people, seeing their livelihoods and their lives play out... He realizes that everyone is worthy of love, including himself. He's not angry at Helene for spending his money and trying to live her life. He just feels pity. He's not angry at Prince Vasily for making a profit off of him and just using him and manipulating him for said money. He just sees that he's an old, you know, pathetic person, but that shouldn't stop him from being loved either. Pierre describes this moment in his life as happy insanity, and his heart is overflowing with love. Good, Pierre. I hope everything works out for you. And in our final chapter, chapter 20, before we get into the epilogue of Born Peace, after all this time, let's see how Natasha and Mary handle this situation. Unbeknownst to us, dear readers, but ever since Pierre entered her life, Natasha has been having feelings for him as well. She feels as if life is coming back into her body once more. Her youthful exuberance has returned, and she is happy to have seen and met and listened to Pierre. The feelings are reciprocated. We love to see it. Mary is a bit skeptical when she sees the change pass over Natasha and says to herself, thinks to herself, you know, my brother meant so little to you that you can move on to this next man. And, but she catches herself in the moment and goes, bad Mary, don't think that thought. Natasha's your friend now. Natasha can't control herself. Her emotions are shining through. She's no longer mourning or grieving. She is experiencing joy. And that night that Mary talked to Pierre alone and comes up, Natasha goes, he said it, didn't he? Said what, says Mary. She obviously knows that Pierre wants to propose to her. And Natasha breaks down crying, tears of joy, saying to Mary, if it's going to happen, you have to teach me. So, you know, you can marry Nikolai, I can marry Pierre, and we can all be happy, a happy family together. And Mary is overwhelmed with joy, too. She goes, fine, you really love him, don't you? Well, then, I'll help you out. He went to St. Petersburg. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to teach you. All of a sudden, Mary's the master of every relationship. Of course, this inner beast, this goddess has been living within her this whole book. And Natasha and Mary start planning what to do since Pierre is in Petersburg now. And we finish our section on today's episode of Drink and Read. It's a momentous occasion. We've only got two episodes left. We've made it to the epilogue. Less than 100 pages to go. Pat yourselves on the back if you've lasted this real long. Reading War and Peace and listening to me recap War and Peace while stumbling over a word or two. Before we pop some bubbly for ourselves, I just want to say thank you for trucking through so long. If you have, if this is your first listen, thank you for making it to the end. I appreciate you. And isn't this a great book, right? 
If you like the ramblings of a madman, being me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, Drink and Read, on most podcasting platforms. Leave us a five-star review and a little written review. I know you're taking time out of your busy, busy schedule, but I deeply appreciate it. And if you like to hear my ramblings even more in other podcast forms, I've got two for you to check out. The first being Nightcaps at the Theater, where myself and my buddies, Mark Zebro Jr. and Macabre, check out some movies and get a little drizzy drunk while doing so it's fun all around and then if anime is more of your cup of tea i know we're talking about tolstoy movies drinking and now anime then check out anime was not a mistake where my co-host dan ryan and i recap anime and anime adjacent things recently we just uh finished at the time of this recording our Anna Masterpiece Theater where we take a look at some Asian movies that uh, we wanted to give the limelight to. Deeply appreciate you checking them out as well. Well next week feel free to join me as we recount the epilogue part one chapters one through sixteen. We've got a lot of storylines to tie up here. How will Natasha and Pierre get hitched if even? We've got Mary and Nikolai. We've got plenty of characters to catch up on. You know that at the double wedding, I'd be the first one to raise a glass in celebration. But as always, dear readers, I'll leave you on my immortal words. Drink and read responsibly. Prochet! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.